Hello there. How are you? This is Lindsay, your host of Life Through a Distorted Lens. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit different, slightly educational, and by slightly, I mean largely educational. Uh, Let's see. I bought a dictionary last year. I don't even know. I lost track of time because I wanted to know the definition of words because all this woke stuff was happening and words were changing. And I just really wanted to make sure that I had a book on hand that I could refer to. And what better book to have than the original 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language by Noah Webster. I bought this on Amazon. It it was pretty expensive, but definitely worth it. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I couldn't believe Amazon even had it. It's not the original. It's the original book uh, reproduced and reprinted to, you know, today's terms. It's not like a book from actually 1828. The contents are, but not the book itself. You get it. I also bought a Merriam-Webster's Pocket Dictionary from 1995. I just basically wanted dictionaries... uh, that were before the year 2000 when stuff started to just kind of hit the uh, the, the ceiling fan, however you want to um, call that. Uh, much to my surprise, uh, there's this whole historical uh, writing in the beginning before it gets to the dictionary part about Noah Webster. And I was absolutely shocked to find out that Noah Webster was a devout Christian um, and he had a lot to do with um, our American Revolution and wrote a lot and had a lot to do with the foundation of America. And, I'm, and I was just blown away. Whether or not it's me just not remembering this from high school because I was terrible in school, I just couldn't pay attention. And I mean, I love history. I've never not liked it, but I just I struggled remembering dates and names and whatnot in school. Maybe I had bad teachers. Who knows? Welcome to ADHD life. So here I am in my 30s now basically doing a book report on Noah Webster because I can't get enough. Um, so my my church has an amazing bookstore and there's been some books about Noah Webster. And I'm like, what? Do tell. Because I was so fascinated with it when I started reading the dictionary, I don't know, back in January this year about Noah Webster. And it's a lot to read. And I haven't even gone through all of it, sadly. But so I purchased another book that is basically... Uh, more of a history lesson, which is also in the dictionary, but it's called Noah Webster's Advice to the Young and Moral... Ah, I forgot to look this one. It's... Oh, God. C-A-T-E-C-H-I-S-M, which is... Uh, I looked it up. It is... Catechism, a text summarizing the basic principles of a Christian denomination, usually in question and answer form. Uh, let's see. Formal indoctrination... And the tenets of a Christian denomination. So um, I'm going to read from that. Um, I, I tried to do like a book report thing. And I don't know if you wanted to know like his true history of how he got married and had, what was it, six girls and two boys and one died in infancy. Um, which I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just telling you like, I don't know if you want to know that, but here I am telling you that. It was hard for me to narrow down basically things to talk about. So I'm going to read from that book. Uh, right now. So Noah Webster is a name recognized by most Americans today, primarily because of the dictionary which bears his name. His achievements, however, go well beyond that momentous work. 
In fact, for his other extensive efforts in early American education, he has been titled America's Schoolmaster. Actually, however, it was his early activities related to the emergence of America as an independent, self-governing nation, which first caused him to focus on education. Additionally, Noah Webster was one of the America's founding's fa- America's founding fathers, first helping her become independent during the American Revolution and then helping establish her under a federal constitution. He realized, like most of the other founding fathers, that for that for America to survive as an independent self-governing nation, it would need much more than just a new form of government. I'm going to be skipping around here so there's going to be some pauses, but uh, yeah, bear with me. Because uh, I'm not going to read, like, all of it because it's a lot. The founders realized that the quality of our new government would would depend upon the quality of our education. In fact, education became so important to our founding father, excuse me, to our founders, that in the 10 years following the American Revolution, more colleges and universities were established in America than in the 150 years preceding the Revolution. The Founders' involvement in education was diverse. Some authored textbooks, example, Benjamin Rush, Jedediah Morse. Some worked on educational policies and legislation, example, George Washington and Rufus King. And some founded universities, Benjamin Franklin and the University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania? I'm getting ahead of myself here. Thomas Jefferson and the University of Virginia. Abraham Baldwin and the University of Georgia. Go dogs. Anyway, (laughs) my family was huge on UGA. It was basically... Uh, UGA versus Georgia Tech. Uh, Back then, I didn't really care about colleges like that. Uh, I still kind of don't, but I'm still nostalgic about anything Georgia really as I continue. Noah Webster was one of the few founding fathers who have participated in all of these aspects of education. He was born in Hartford, Connecticut in 1758. Noah came from a family with a history of leadership His mother was a descendant of Governor William Bradford of the Pilgrims, and his father was a descendant of John Webster, an early governor of Connecticut. Noah spent his childhood years learning the the discipline of farm life on his family's small farm. In 1774, his father mortgaged the farm to raise the money to send Noah to Yale, where his studies were interrupted several times by the Revolution. In fact, Noah left twice Yale to join the fighting, once marching to Canada in 1776 and then marching with his father's company of militia to the field of battle at Saratoga to participate in the surrender of British General Beauregard, I don't know how to say that, in 1777. Noah finally graduated from Yale in 1778. Let's see here. Uh, Let's see. Upon Noah's graduation, his father gave him $8 in continental currency and told him that henceforth he must support himself. Noah returned to Hartford and began teaching school while pursuing the study of law. After three years in 1781, he was admitted to the bar, and during part of his studies, he lived in the home of the attorney Oliver Ellsworth, who later became a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and then a chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Noah's three years of teaching school first revealed to him the wheat here's where it gets interesting in my opinion the weaknesses of american education it was too reliant on the british not only did many young americans travel overseas to study in british and other foreign colleges but american schools used british geography and literature books and even taught british meanings for words webster explained the weaknesses of this system he says the institutions in this country which are new and peculiar peculiar give rise to new terms or to new applications of old terms. Thus the terms land office, land warrant, location of land, 
consoci oof, I don't know how to say that. Consociation. Consociation? Mm. Of churches, regent of a university, intendant of a city, etc., are either words not belonging to the language of England, or they are applied to things in this country which do not exist in that. No person in this country will be satisfied with the English definitions of the words Congress, Senate, Assembly, Court, etc. But this is not all. The English dictionaries inform us that a justice is one deputed by the king to do right by way of judgment. He is a lord by his office. Justices of the peace are appointed by the king's commission, language which is inaccurate in respect to this officer in the United States, and which requires a different definition. And that's the end of the uh, his writing there, um, Webster's explanation. Webster understood that a continued attachment to Great Britain in education might lead to a return to her politics. He realized that there was a clear connection between popular education and popular sovereignty. Recognizing that, as he told one friend, America must be as independent in literature as she is in politics. He therefore began to promote a distinctly American system of education. That's she here. He announced, um, let's see, uh, he, in a publication called Dissertations on the English Language, he said, Now is the time in which we may expect success in attempting changes favorable to language, science, and government. Let us then seize the present moment and establish a national language as well as a national government. End of his writing, Rottweiler. Webster had long believed that an integral part of a new American system of education was new, purely American textbooks. Yeah, you think? Basically, this is obviously um, the Revolutionary War, which is 1776. And he realized that, uh, you know, we can't be using these English um, geography and science and whatnot. We've got to establish our uh, American language, really. Uh, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Um, I'm just, yeah, anyway. By the time Webster published those books, the two small elementary books had expanded to three, entitled Grammatical Institutes of the English Language. The first volume, 17, in 1783, was an American speller and introduced the Americanized spelling of British words. Example, labor. So I'm going to read this out here. Uh, L-A-B-O-R instead of obviously L-A-B-O-U-R. Honor. H-O-N-O-R instead of obviously H-O-N-O-U-R and public instead of, well, okay, I should have read it like this instead of lab, okay <laughs> apparently British, by the way, spells public I don't know if they still do this, but P-U-B-L-I-C-K um, Benjamin Franklin, who had long advocated of spelling reforms, had a significant influence on Webster's philosophy of spelling as, oh, geez. as Webster later explained to George Washington I am encouraged to proceed in my design of refining the language and improving our general system of education. Dr. Franklin has extended my views to a very simple plan of reducing the language to perfect, perfect regularity. More interesting historical stuff here. While Webster's Institutes, which is the, uh, what was it, Grammatical Institutes of the English Language, uh, which is what he wrote, experienced national success, that success came at the cost of Webster's frustration of having to publish under 13 autonomous state governments. Because there was no uniformity of laws between the states, Webster found little, no, or highly variable copyright protection for his works from state to state, and he thus had great difficulty in obtaining legal protections for those works. This experience, coupled with his firm belief that students in each state should be taught the same common elements of an American education, caused him to align politically with the Federalists. 
1784 to 1785, Webster promoted his Federalist ideas and argued for a national system of government in his book Sketches of American Policy. This work was believed by many to be one of the first calls for a constitution of the United States. I want to talk about how he was really beloved uh, by many, um, like James Madison, encouraged him in his pursuit for, um, let's see, his plan for an American system of education. Um, many of the uh, many delegates uh, knew not only knew of him and respected Webster, but even dined with him and recalled on him at his home. Example, George Washington, Edmund Randolph. I'm not going to pretend like I know all these people, by the way, uh, but maybe you do. Oliver Ellsworth, William Livingston, Roger Sherman, Jared Ingersoll, Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Baldwin, Timothy Pickering, and James Madison. <clears throat> uh, he was really respected by basically everyone, it sounds like. Um, Let's see. Ideas born out of Webster's earlier frustrations with state copyright laws took root in the final product of that convention. This is, again, talking about the, uh, I think, the Federalist Convention. Which convention? <laughs> oh, it's the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, in 1787. <laughs> it was Webster's efforts, combined with those of Dr. David Ramsey, a member of the Constitution, excuse me, Continental Congress from South Carolina, as well as an author, historian, and physician, which led to the inclusion of uniform copyright protection in Article 1, Section 8 uh, of the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Following the adjournment of the Constitutional Convention, members solicited Webster's assistance and asked him to exert his influence to help secure public acceptance of the new Constitution. Uh, Webster responded enthusiastically and published the leading principles of the federal constitution, which he dedicated to Benjamin Franklin to urge support and ratification of the new federalist document. Let's see, that's where he met uh, Rebecca Greenleaf, uh, and the, the courtship began. Um, he published an American magazine to promote American education in 1787. It was literally called American Magazine. Um, mm -hmm. Married. I already told you about that. He had six daughters and two sons, and one died in infancy. Uh, he actually wrote a magazine called Minerva, which is a semi-weekly paper. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That one was a daily paper, and the semi-weekly paper was called the Herald. Uh, let's see. And then those actually, those two papers were later known as the Commercial Advertiser and the New York Spectator, which I'm pretty sure New York Spectator is still a thing. Not maybe commercial advertiser still is. Not. I'm going to read to you some of Noah Webster's other writings and works. Uh, this, this one was called Elements of Useful Knowledge. It's a three-volume work filled with American history, geography, and several documents reflecting American government, i.e. the Constitution, and Washington's farewell address. In 1806, he published his first dictionary, a compendious dictionary of the American language. In 1807, he published a philosophical and practical grammar of the English language. This is also the year he began to buckle down in his great dictionary, of which this consumed most of his time. More works are, uh, let's see, the name of it is, On the Supposed Change in Temperature of Winter, which foreshadowed the work of the Census and Weather Bureaus of later times, uh, A Brief History of Epidemic and pestil Pestilential Diseases, a textbook used in middle, uh, excuse me, middle schools, uh, medical schools. He helped found Amherst College. Uh, Yale awarded him a doctorate of civil law. In 1824, still working on his massive dictionary, Webster traveled to England and France to examine literary works not available in America and to consult with other experts on word usage. There he made a final collection of useful and necessary materials and completed his uh, manuscript, 
before returning to America. Incidentally, in preparing for in preparing the dictionary and seeking to understand the origin and etymology of words, Webster learned over 20 languages. In 1828, his two-volume masterpiece was published, A Dictionary of the English Language. That dictionary, containing 12,000 words and 40,000 definitions not found in any previous dictionary, was the first to record non-literary words and to include American meetings and, quote, Americanisms. His work was described as the most ambitious publication ever undertaken up to that time upon American soil. During the 20 years that Webster had dedicated himself to the compilation and writing of his comprehensive dictionary, he supported himself and his family from the income received from the sales of the institutes, which was one of his other writings. He had an incredible amount of writings, good Lord, and papers. Let's see. Although the royalty from each sale was small, less than one cent per copy, the volume had been enormous, nearly a million copies a year. By his death in 1843, some 404 editions had appeared. By 1847, 24 million copies had been purchased by schools and the public. And by 1889, the number had increased to 62 million. Wow. Eventually, over 100 copies of the of his speller sold in 1936. It was still in use in schools, and as late as 1975, two editions still appeared in print. In 1832, Webster revised his three-volume Elements of Useful Knowledge into a single small history book for schools called The History of the United States. It was clearly an American view of history, and just as his institutes helped shape the structure of American language, this work helped shape the teaching of American history. In fact, one education group claimed, quote, the obligation of our common schools to Noah Webster for his early work in promoting the study of our history is incalculable. Oof. Incalculable. I think that's not right yet. End quote. Uh, Webster's advice to the young, which he has, which, I'm sorry, this is in the book here, which, uh, it's pretty long, but I'll try to read some of it. Um, he explained, Webster explained, the advice to the young, it is hoped, will be useful in enlightening the minds of youth in religious and moral principles and serve in degree to restrain some of the common vices of our country. Republican government loses half of its value where the moral and social duties are imperfectly understood or negligently practiced. To exterminate our popular vices is a work of far more importance to the character and happiness of our citizens than any other improvements in our system of education. God, he wrote so much. It's quite incredible. In addition to the books already mentioned, Webster authored numerous others, including The Little Reader's Assistant in 1790, The Prompter in 1791. I'm just going to read um, the books, not the years. The Peculiar Doctrines of the Gospel Explained and Defended, uh, The History of Animals, Letters to a Young Man Commencing His Education, A Revision of the Authorized Version of the English Bible, The Value of the Bible, Observations on Language, a collection of papers on political, literary, and moral subjects, and many other works. Crazy. Let's see here. Webster believed that instilling in his children a love and veneration for the scriptures was the greatest legacy he could leave them. A confirmation of his commitment to this legacy was evidenced when 35 of his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren gathered in New Haven in 1842 to celebrate three years late the golden wedding anniversary of Noah and Rebecca, which was his wife. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, it's cute, but I'm not going to read it because it's quite long. Uh, a fun, let's see. A fundamental tenet of his educational philosophy had been that Christian principles were inseparable from a successful education system. As he explained, in my view, 
The Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Uh, I'm going to continue. This is uh, some of the advice to students from his textbooks. I would commend to you at this early period of life to become well acquainted with the scriptures and with the facts and arguments which support their authenticity and their divine original. Nothing is more common than for young men to fall into skepticism merely for want of a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. Sin, even in this life, produces more pain and misery than real pleasure. No, my friend, there is no substantial satisfaction in this life, except in conforming to the laws of the supreme lawgiver. Man enjoys the most happiness when his heart is reconciled to the divine laws and most conformed to the divine character. The soul of, a, of man is, I am persuaded, never tranquil till the will is subdued and has yielded with implicit submission to God's sovereign grace. After Webster defined each word in his dictionary, he would provide illustrations to clarify the meanings of the word, and a significant percentage of the thousand, thousands of examples he provided were Bible verses. This is what also blew my mind when I bought this um, dictionary. I was like, what? I, I just couldn't believe it. Anyway, um, because I'm like, even if I learned about Noah Webster in school, I seriously doubt that the emphasis on him being a Christian and him... Um, really wanted to instill Christian principles in the foundation of America and, uh, you know, in the youth. I don't know. I just don't remember any of that, honestly. Excuse me. Let me get to continue, ugh, continue reading. You're going to have to excuse me today. I am tired. It is hot. Um, I'm just sleepy. The state of the world is, um, you know, has me kind of depressed. Go figure. I'm a human. Um, uh, yeah, this, I don't know. I had another person cancel on me. I am not even kidding. So whoopee. And having Monday, I took Monday off. So that actually wasn't a great idea because I'm now I'm like a day behind. Anyway, let's see here. Uh, yeah. Did I already say that? Let me reread re that part. And a significant percentage of the thousands of examples he provided were Bible verses. But this was not surprising for, as he, as he declared in the preface to that dictionary... I present this dictionary to my fellow citizens, not with frigid indifference, but with my ardent wishes for their improvement and happiness, and the moral and religious evaluation, excuse me, elevation of character, and the glory of my country. It's funny how much, like, like I struggle with reading now. I don't know, maybe it's just the way this book is written, or I don't know. I mean, I didn't love reading uh, growing up, but now I'm, like, super hungry for reading and uh, I bought so many books since, uh, the quarantine stuff started. Um, I've just had like a newfound love for, uh, self-education and the fact that I basically was doing like a book report here about Noah Webster blows my mind, like voluntary. Like I did this on my own free will. Um, you couldn't pay me to do this back in high school. I just hated doing this stuff. I found it <laughs> boring reading, I guess. Now I love reading. So forgive me if I'm kind of sloppy with reading. Um, I am a human, so, you know. Before you start bitching about me reading, like, or whatever, bitching about anything in my podcast, um, I, I, I just hate that shit. You know, I, I'm not, I'm I'm obviously guilty of doing that, too. Lord, I've done that, too. Where I'm like, ugh, 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 just bitching about whatever it is. Um, like, it's just silly, because it's like, you, everyone, everyone is a human, and everyone 
not everyone is perfect and whatever. I don't know what I'm going on here about. <laughs> uh, oh, because just because those stupid comments about like my podcast, like, oh, you're talking over the person, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, um, you have no idea how much I struggle with like, I don't know. I'm like, you, you run an effing podcast. You do it then. God, it's annoying. I, I'm I'm not a professional. Like, I didn't go to school for any of this. I just picked up the podcasting myself. I just did it myself. Um, I am fully aware of, like, me talking over people. I have ADHD. I'm not trying to blame my ADHD. I am continually working on that. I just think it's hilarious that people think that uh, just because someone exhibits this um, symptom or behavior, that that means that they're not actually trying to work on that actively. Imagine being like, wow. Um, you're eating too much and the person is struggling heavily with like eating too much and they're really trying not to. It's just really, it's really small minded on like not understand, not, it's just, it sounds like people have lost their ability to like, uh, I guess have empathy, not empathy, but, uh, understanding that maybe, maybe they're, maybe they're working on that. Maybe, um, you know, I don't know. Anyway, that was a little tangent, but welcome to my life and my podcast. So yeah, this book I bought, uh, Noah Webster's Advice to Young, I'm going to read, because what I just read was basically the preface uh, before um, the actual thing that he wrote in 1832. So I'm going to read from Summer Diet. Advice to the Young, um, it's pretty long, so I'm just going to skip around. Number one, my young friends, the first years of your life are to be employed in learning those things which are to make you good citizens, useful members of society, and candidates for a happy state in another world. Among the first things you are to learn are your duties to your parents. These duties are commanded by God and are necessary to your happiness in this life. The commandments of God are honor thy father and thy mother. Children, obey your parents in all things. These commands are binding on all children. They cannot be neglected without sin. Whatever God has commanded us to do, we must perform without calling in question the propriety of the command. Number two. But the reasonableness of this command to obey parents is clear and easily understood by children, even when quite young. Parents are the natural guardians of their children. It is their duty to feed, clothe, protect, and educate them. And for these purposes, it is proper and necessary that parents should have authority to, to, to direct these, excuse me, their actions. Parents, therefore, are bound by duty and by right to govern their children. But the exercise of this right is to be regulated by affection. Parents have implanted in them a tender love for their offspring, which includes them to exercise authority over them with kindness. Number three, it is proper that parents should be entrusted with the instruction of children because children have everything to learn and parents are older and have gained a knowledge of what their children want to know. Parents have learned what is right and what is wrong, what is duty and what is sin, what is useful and what is hurtful to children and to men. And as children pass the first years of their life with their parents, they may be continually learning from their parents what is necessary or useful in the concerns of life. Number four, it is not, I'm also realizing how much easier it is for me, for me to read this because the font is much bigger and I like the font and anyway, because I was struggling with the other stuff anyway. Number four, it is not only proper that children should obey their parents, but their obedience should be prompt and cheerful. A slow, reluctant obedience and that which is accompanied with murmurings, murmurings, is not acceptable to parents nor to God. A sense of duty should make a child free and ready to comply with the parents' command. And this will always be the case where the child entertains a due, re- a due respect for his parents. Love and respect render obedience easy and cheerful, cheerful. And a willing obedience increases the confidence of parents and their children. 
and strengthens their attachment to them. But a cold and unwilling obedience with a murmuring disposition alienates affection and inclines the parent to rigor and severity in the exercise of his authority. Five, hence it is a primary duty of children, and as much their interest as it is their duty to, quote, honor their father and their mother, this honor not only forbids a child to, to disobey his parents, but it forbids all rudeness and ill manners towards them. Children should manifest their respect for their parents and all their actions. They should be modest and respectful in their company, never interrupting them in conversation, nor boldly contradicting them. They should address them as superiors and yield to their opinions and admonitions. The, sub the subordination of children to their parents is the foundation of peace in families, contributes to foster those kindly dispositions, both in parent and children, which are the sources of domestic happiness, and which extend their influence to all social relations in subsequent periods of life. Number six, among the first and most important truths which you are to learn are those which relate to God and religion. As soon as you're, I'm going to lose some uh, listeners here, which that's fine. But I mean, if anything, just listen, I guess. You don't have to believe anything of what, uh, what Noel Webster's saying or what I believe. That's not at all what I'm trying to do here. Although that'd be amazing because Jesus saves. But <laughs> um, anyway, let's see here. Let me continue. Do, 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 do. Uh, okay. As soon as your minds become capable of reasoning or excited by curiosity to know the cause of things, you will naturally inquire who made the world, who made you, and why were you made? You will understand by a moment's thought that the things around you, you cannot have made themselves. You will be convinced that a stone or a mass of earth cannot have made itself, as it has no, as it has no power in itself to act or move. It must then have had a creator, some being that had power to act or move, and to bring the stone into existence." Number seven, you observe that plants and trees grow, but they do not grow in winter when it is cold. Some degree of heat is necessary to their growth. You conclude then that wood and vegetable matter in itself has not the power of growth or increase. You see various animals as dogs and horses, but you know they cannot create themselves. The first animal of every kind must have had a creator distinct from the animal himself. You see houses and barns and ships, but you know that they did not make themselves. You know that they were made by men. You also know that you did not create yourselves. You began to exist at a time which you cannot remember and in a manner of which you have no knowledge. Howdy doody. Enjoying the show? Join the rational revolution and unlock extra censored top secret content that big tech finds to be too truthful. Head over to subscribestar.com forward slash distorted lens and choose a tier or donate directly through PayPal. Type in paypal.me forward slash LP foster kittens to donate directly with PayPal. Your donations help me to bring you the truths of the world each and every week. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, on to the show. Eight, from such familiar observations and reflections, children may be convinced with absolute certainty that there must be a being who has been the creator of all the things which they see. Now, when you think that of all the substances about you, not one can have been its own creator. And when you see the vast multitude of things, their variety, their size, their curious forms and structures, you will at once conclude that the being, being is capital B there, who could make such things must possess immense power, although superior to the power of any being that you see on this earth, on the earth. 
You will then be led to inquire, who is this being and where is he? Number nine, here not only children, but the wisest philosophers are brought to a stand. We are compelled to believe that there is a being of vast and unlimited power who has created whatever we see, but who he is and or where he is, we cannot know by our own observation or reason. As we cannot see this being, we cannot by the help of reason know anything of his manner of existence or of his power except what we learn from his works or from revelation if we had been left to gather all our knowledge of the creator from his works our knowledge of him must have been very imperfect but the creator has not left mankind in ignorance on this subject he has graciously revealed his character to man and his revelations are recorded in a book which by way of eminence is called the bible this is so long, by the way. Let's see. That's number nine, ten. I'm going to just kind of maybe skim over. I don't even know how to summarize it because I like reading all of it. But ten, from the Bible, we learn that, that God is a spirit. Hence, we cannot see him. Spirit is not visible to human eyes, yet we need not wonder that a substance which is invisible should possess amazing power. Uh, number, let's see, eleven. The scriptures inform us that God is not only all-powerful, but all-wise, and his wisdom is displayed in the admirable structure of whatever he has made, in the adaptation of everything to its proper uses, in the exact order and beautiful arrangement and harmony of all its, of all, excuse me, of all parts of creation. Twelve, we learn also from the Bible that God is a uh, holy being. It's weird when people break, I don't, anyway, sorry. That is, he is perfectly free from any sinful attributes or dispositions. Da, 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 da. Let's see, twelve, thirteen. The first and most important point to be decided in your minds is that God is your supreme or sovereign ruler. On this point, there can be no room for doubt, for nothing can be more evident than, the, than that the being who creates another has a perfect and indisputable right to govern him. Fourteen. I'm not reading all of them, by the way, like I said. Man is a being of a higher order. He is furnished with understanding or intellect and with powers of reason by which he is able to understand what God required of, requires of him and to judge of what is right and wrong. Let's see. 15. Being satisfied that God is your creator and rightful governor. The next inquiry is, what is his will concerning you? For what purpose did he make you and endow you with reason? A wise being would not have made you without a wise purpose. It is very certain then that God requires you to perform some duties and fill some useful excuse me, station among other beings. 16. The next inquiry then is, what are you to do with what you are to forbear in order to act the part which your maker has assigned to you in the world? Uh, skipping 4 to 17. The Bible contains the commandments of God. That book is full of rules to direct your conduct on earth, and from that book you, mu you may obtain all you want to know respecting your relation to God and to your fellow men, and respecting the duties which these relations require you to perform. Your duties are comprised in two classes, one including such as are to be performed directly to God himself, the other those which are to be performed directly to your fellow men. 18. The first and great command is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The supreme love to God is the first, the great, the indispensable duty of every rational being. Without this, no person can yield acceptable obedience to his maker. Uh, la, 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 la. 
Goodness or holiness is the only source of real happiness. It is therefore necessary to be holy in order to be happy. As the character of God is the only perfect model of holiness, it follows that all God's creatures who are intended to be happy must have the like character. 19. Sin is the source of all evil. If sin was admitted into heaven, it would disturb the happiness of the celestial abode. 20. Again, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, it is true that in this world, men do not become perfectly holy, but God has provided a redeemer whose example on earth was a perfect model of holy obedience to God's law, which example men are to uh, imitate as far as they are able. And God accepts the penitent, penitent yeah, sinner's cordial faith in Christ, accompanied with sincere repentance and humble submission and be in obedience to his commands in the place of perfect holiness and character. 21, the duties which you owe directly to God are entire unwavering faith in his promises, reverence of his character, and frequent prayer and worship. 22, the second class of duties comprehends, this is so long, I'm going to skip ahead. Let's see. Interesting, what is this? 26, one of the most, I don't know how many there are, really. let's see, let me skip all the way. Um, there are, looks like there are 56, dang. Oh, I didn't know they... Oh, they did mention that. There's two books in here. This one is obviously... Uh, da, da, da. This one's... Uh, yeah. Hold on, is it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. History of the United States. What I'm reading is entitled Inside This Book that I mentioned I'm reading from. It's called History of the United States, to which is prefixed a brief historical account of our English ancestors from the dispersion at Babel to their migration to america and of the conquest of south america by the spaniards by noah webster lld uh new haven published by dury and peck baldwin and treadway print in 1832 um let's see where to leave off one of them this is uh number 26 one of the most important rules of social conduct is justice this consists positively in rendering to every person that is due to him and negatively and avoiding everything that may impair his rights justice embraces the rights of property the rights of personal liberty and safety and the rights of character all right let me skip ahead uh this is a um thou shalt not steal um gosh yeah exhausting a little bit here uh, I'm going to skip forward to the next book that he wrote. It's called The American Spelling Book, Containing the Rudiments of the English Language for the Use of Schools in the United States by Noah Webster. Um, oh, this is the question and answer thing. Yes. Question. What is moral virtue? Answer. It is an honest, upright conduct in all our dealings with men. Question. What rules have we to direct us in our moral conduct? Answer. God's word containing the Bible has furnished all necessary rules to direct our conduct. Question. In what part of the Bible are these rules to be found? Answer. In almost every part. But the most important duties between men are summed up in the beginning of Matthew in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Um, I guess it just skips ahead to... Uh... It says, uh, I guess it's like the start of the chapter. An easy standard of pronunciation. Uh, and this says, of humility. Hmm. I'm trying to understand what that means. But I guess it's, uh, he's obviously talking about um, this section is all about humility. The next one is about mercy. The next one is purity of heart. The next one is ang it's about anger, uh, you know, revenge, justice, generosity, gratitude, truth, charity, giving alms, 
avarice, frugality, uh, industry, cheerfulness. Fascinating. Um, let's see. I'm going to read some of the Q&As from each one, but not all of them because it's quite long. This one's of humility. What is humility? A lowly temper of mind. What are the advantages of humility? I'm not going to say Q&A because you obviously understand which part is a question, which one's the answer. The advantages of humility in this life are very numerous and great. The humble man has few or no enemies. Everyone loves him and is ready to do him good. If he is rich and pro pro oh, preposterous, what? Prosperous, Lord, I'm sorry. You have to forgive me. These words I'm not used to reading. People do not envy him. If he is poor and unfortunate, everyone pities him and is disposed to alleviate his distresses. Huh. Let's see. Next one is mercy. What are the advantages of this virtue? The exercise of it tends to diffuse happiness and lessen the evils of life. Rulers of a merciful temper will make their good subjects happy. It will not torment the bad with needless severity. Parents and masters will not abuse their children and servants with harsh treatment. More love, more confidence, more happiness will subsist among men. And of course, society will be happier. Next one is peacemakers. Um, is it unlawful to contend with others on any occasion? It is impossible to avoid differences with men, but disputes should be always conducted with temper and moderation. The man who keeps his temper will not be rash or do or say things which he will afterwards repent of. And though men should sometimes defer, still they should be friends. They should be ready to do kind offices to each other. <laughs> Uh, can you imagine if people now were offended and they actually remained friends afterwards? Interesting. <laughs> uh, this is about a purity of heart. Uh, should, a, should a man's intentions as well as his actions be good? Most certainly. Actions cannot be called good unless they proceed from good motives. We should wish to see and make all men better and happier. We should rejoice at their prosperity. This is benevolence. This is about anger. By what rules should anger be governed? We should never be angry without cause. That is, we should be certain that a person means to affront, injure, or insult us before we suffer ourselves to be angry. Oh, I love that. Which I think to me means don't assume that someone is uh, trying to insult or injure you. Anyway, it is wrong. It is mean. It is a mark of a little mind to take fire at every little trifling dispute. And when we have real cause to be angry, we should observe moderation. We should never be in a passion. A passionate man is like a madman and is always inexcusable. We should be cool even in anger and be angry no longer than to obtain justice. In short, we should be angry and sin not. Revenge. Um, what is revenge? It is to injure a man because he has injured us. Is it justifiable? Never, in any possible case. Revenge is perhaps the meanest as well as wickedest vice in society. What shall a man do to obtain justice when he is injured? In general, laws have made provision for doing justice to every man, and it is right and honorable when a man is injured <clears throat> that he should seek a recompense. Recompense? Mm, words we don't use anymore, I think. But a recompense is all he can command. Excuse me, demand. And of that, he should not be his own judge, but should submit the matter to judges appointed by authority. Let's see. This is about justice. Oh, there's a typo. <laughs> um, this is like old school typo. Uh, it is always, uh, excuse me, is it always easy to know what is just? 
it is generally easy and where there is any differ excuse me difficulty it's the next page i didn't know if it was say i don't know if it was going to say different or difficulty difficulty in determining let a man consult the golden rule to do others what he could reasonably wish they should do to him in the same circumstances generosity let's see what has christ said respecting generosity he has commanded us to be generous in this passage quote whoever whosoever shall compel or urge you to go to go to what hold on shall compel you to go a mile go with him too gotcha yeah i mean it I mean it what god i understand it sorry it's hot and i'm tired <laughs> um let's see gratitude is it a duty to be thankful for favors it is a duty and a virtue a man who does not feel grateful for kind acts done by him done for him by others does not deserve favors of any kind he ought to be shut out from society of the good he is worse than a savage for a savage never forgets an act of kindness hmm let me read that again he is worse than a savage for a savage never forgets an accent yeah that's true hmm. what is the effect of true kindness it softens the heart towards the generous man and everything which subdues the pride and other unsocial passions of the heart fits a man to be a better citizen a better neighbor a better husband and a better friend a man who is sensible of favors ready to acknowledge them is more inclined to perform kind of kind offices not only toward his benefactor but towards all others truth is it a duty to speak truth at all times if we speak if we speak at all we should tell the truth it is not always necessary to tell what we know there are many things which concern ourselves and others which we had better not publish to the world that's funny Woo. Let's see. Um, yeah, I'm just going to stop reading that because it's always almost done anyway. Fascinating. That's only like two of his written works. God, he's, he's written so many. I, I'm interested in, uh, what was the other one I read? Um, his, some of his publications. It was something that really sparked my interest. Something about, uh, uh, it is, I want to read, uh, I guess, his observations on language and uh, the value of the Bible. That'd be interesting. Some, you know, a couple of his writings. Now, I'm going to read from the uh, Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary Needed to Restore an American Christian Education in the Home and Church in the School. This is basically, uh, it's written on green paper before the actual dictionary starts. Um, so I'm just going to, this book is so big. Let's see. Noah Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language was produced during the years when the American home, church, and school were established upon a biblical and patriotic basis. Webster considered ed education useless without the Bible, while he cautioned against too extensive use of the Bible in the schools as tending to irreverence. He reiterated, in my view, the Christian religion is the most important. Oh, I've already read this to you. Sorry. See, there's uh, some similar writings from the dictionary and that um, uh, no Webster's advice to the young book. So forgive me if I start reading uh, duplicates. No truth is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Today, when the biblical basis of education is under systematic attack, we need to capitalize upon the availability of our first American dictionary, the only dictionary in the world to draw water out of the wells of salvation, to utilize God's written word as a key to the meaning of words. Historically, it documents the degree to which the Bible was America's basic textbook in all fields. 
Um, let's see. Horace Mann in the 1840s removed the Bible and its sacred purpose from the schools, um, not the United States Supreme Court in the 1960s. Noah Webster, the lexicographer, claimed to have coined only one word, demoralize, which he defined to corrupt or undermine the morals of, to destroy or lessen the effect of moral principles on, to render corrupt and morals. Today, the field of lexic lexicography has been demoralized by those who would make contemporary usage and slang a standard of reference for students in our schools. Pornographic terminology has come to have educational significance in state schools where, uh, where Dictionary of American Slang has received academic acceptance. Is that an actual dictionary? Interesting. Again, I'm reading from the actual dictionary book. Noah Webster recognized that each age is subject to the demoralization of its language by the literary or modish segment of society. Thus, he put as a check and balance upon each other universal undisputed practice in the common law of language or established principles of analogy, change for the sake of change, vulgarity, cant, slang for its own sake, was to Webster like the principle of motion in physics. If not controlled, it became the principle of destruction. Thus, expressions peculiar to and generally understood only by members of a peculiar sect, class, or occupation as uh, A, the secret jargon of thieves, tramps, etc. B, the special idiom of a profession or trade. Or C, a mode of talking used merely out of convention, especially, excuse me, ESP, uh, the insincere use of pious phraseology. Found no place in Noah Webster's dictionaries. The responsibility to establish a standard of reference which will enable students to study the history and literature of our founding period in its original context and is critical today. We need the primary biblical, Christian, and constitutional meanings of words. Noah Webster spent a lifetime endeavoring to liberate America from European, uh, European ties of folly, corruption, and tyranny. He sought to build an education system in the school, the church, and the home, embodying a love of virtue, patriotism, and religion. In the preface of his history of the United States, uh, United States, he wrote, Republican government loses half of its value where the moral and social duties are imperfectly understood or neg negligently practiced. To exterminate our popular vices is a work of far more importance to the character and happiness of our citizens than any other improvements in our system of education. A great concern for posterity and for the youth of the country is evident among our founders. They recognized that the nature of our American Christian form of government demanded a quality of individual responsibility and a capacity for self-government never before required in any nation. An American education was, therefore, greatly needed to extend the new independence into every field of activity. Noah Webster, as did most Americans of his day, affirmed that the principles of Republican government have their origin in the scriptures, and he sought to build an education system embodying a love of virtue, patriotism, and religion. Now, I have to say to that, amen, Noah Webster. Oh, boy. God Almighty. So then it goes on to the actual 1828 dictionary, and Noah Webster wrote a preface, which I'm not going to read because it's long. Um... And after that, it has definition of language, origin of language. Oh, my Lord. This is like tiny font. Uh, affinity of languages, Saxon and Gothic. I mean, um, Russian language, Welsh. He explains, like, I mean, everything. Like, uh, got him. Let's see. Uh, da -da -da -da. Uh, change of articulation or consonants. Uh, change of vowels change or loss of radical letters, 
change of signi signification. Uh, this is like, uh, I guess it's just, um, um, I don't know. <clears throat> Talks about different uh, languages. Latin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Armoric, Russian, Persic, Welsh. It's incredible. This is so long, by the way. This is even the, uh, the dictionary definitions haven't even existed. I don't know what this is. Lego? It says Lego. The Greek, something is rendered to speak or say, to tell, count, or number, to gather, collect, or choose. Uh, the Latin Lego, the same verb, is rendered to gather to... I don't even know. I took Latin in high school, by the way, and I was a week late. Like, I changed... Uh, I changed my classes, so I missed the first week of Latin, and, man, that screwed me over. If you miss... Basically, the first week of any language class in school is you learn, like, the basics of the language. So I was... I was behind the entire uh, semester or whatever you call it. It wasn't called semesters back then, but it, it was, Latin is so hard. I was like, I'm going to take this because Latin is important and it is important, but holy crap. My teacher was so nice. She, uh, really, uh, helped me out a lot. Uh, let's see. Lord, what in the world? Like, this is so long. Um, this, let's see, going on is a chapter about orthography. I don't even know what that is. What is orthography? Let me see. Uh, from the period of the first sex and writings, our language has been uh, has been suffering changes in orthography. The first writers, having no guide but the ear, followed each his own judgment or fancy, and hence a great portion of Saxon words are written with different letters by different authors. Most of them are written two or three different ways, and some of them 15 or 20. To this day, the orthography of some classes of words is not entirely settled, and in others it is settled in a manner to confound the learner and mislead him into false pronunciation. Wow. Nothing can... It's just interesting how I use false. Anyways... Uh, nothing can be more dis disreputable to the literary character of a nation than the history of English ortho orthography, unless it is that of orthop. I don't even know what are these words, dude. Jeez. Okay. Uh, this is still introduction pronunciation. I'm just telling you all the stuff that is absolutely fascinating. There's so much about just language in general. Um, I don't even know what is this. Uh, etymology, um, accentuation, accent is the more force, forcible utterance of a particular syllable of a word by which it is distinguished from the others, which you understand that. Uh, di okay, dissyllables, trisyllables, uh, what does that mean? Hmm, I think it just means like... Huh. Okay, yeah, syllables. Just different kind of language. Uh, and then the next chapter is called A Philosophical and Practical Grammar of the English Language. It says advertisement? I don't even know, dude. I don't know what this is. Um, and then the next chapter is Philosophical and Practical Grammar, English, okay, the English alphabet, uh, rules for spelling, classifications of words. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Pronouns or substitutes, uh, gender, case, really? Huh. What does it say? Anyway. Actually, let me read that. Gender and grammar is a difference of termination to express distinction of sex. There being two sexes, male and female, words which denote males are said to be of masculine gender, 
Those which denote females of the feminine gender. Oh, okay. Words expressing things without sex are said to be of neuter gender. Why aren't, why aren't non-binary people calling themselves neuter? There are therefore but two genders, yet for convenience, the neuter is classed with the genders. And we say there are three, the masculine, feminine, and neuter. The English modes of distinguishing sex are these. Um, yeah. Before people, before, before people go buck wild on that, this is about language, not about like you, you and what your sex is. Let's see. Go on with uh, tenses, past tense, present, um, verbs, auxiliaries, modes, par participles. Am I saying that right? Um, my God. It's honestly amazing. Adverbs, prepositions, connectives, and conjunctives, uh, syntax. Uh, exclamation. I mean, it's still going. <clears throat> Are you enjoying the sound of the uh, flipping pages? Directions for the pronunciation of words. Abbreviations explained. Ugh. American Dictionary of English, English Language. Okay, now it's starting. So let me uh, use an example of how they he put the Bible in uh, the dictionary, or excuse me, some scriptures. Oh, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay. Uh, here's the word again, and it says. Against, but placed after its object as. Well, learning what that says. I can't even understand that. Oh, okay. The primary sense is to turn or to meet in front, or the name of the face, front, or forepart. A second time, once more, number one. Two, it notes something fur further or additional to one or more particulars. For to which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews, uh, it says I. So that's an example how it will have the definition, uh, you know, how many, however many definitions there are to the word. And then at the end of that, it has a Bible verse, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, this book is massive. I can't recommend it more. I highly recommend buying it. It's just fascinating because um, there are some times where I hear a word and I want to know if that word is like original to the first dictionary in 1828 um, and a lot of the words uh, that I look up now don't exist in that dictionary. Um, it's just fascinating once you start realizing how important language is, obviously, and how butchered language has gotten. Uh, you know, men can be women and women can be men. And by the way, no, they can't. There's, there's, so many, there's just so many lies going on. And I just found it fascinating how Christianity was a big basis on founding America. And I really, truly believe that the reason why we're not, we haven't, succumbed to total totalitarianism in America is because of the Constitution, and the Constitution was founded on biblical, godly principles, um, and I don't know, I just really believe that this is, at least for now, protecting us, and I believe that it always will protect us. Um, I don't know, it's just given me a really big sense of pride, and um, I feel very blessed to be born in America, and I've really embraced loving America and its values are incredibly important. I really, you know, obviously recommend looking them up and studying it because I didn't know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's all for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I, I would, I, I wish I could cover more about Noah Webster because I just found it fascinating. But I think you got enough there. 
Um, thanks for listening. Uh, please review my podcast on Apple Podcasts if you can. That would mean a lot to me um, by actually writing a review. Um, you can support my work by donating on PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash distorted lens, or become a monthly contributor on my subscribe star, which is subscribestar.com forward slash distorted lens, or you can buy some of my goodies on my website, which is lindsayplatotionart.com. Also, by the way, I have a new type of newsletter. I'm not going to call it newsletter. I mean, I can treat it like a newsletter, but, um, you know, the, the crackdown and censorship of big tech has been going on since I started this whole thing with the whole women's rights thing. Um, and now, especially with the, uh, I don't know, just everything that's going on, as you're very much aware, uh, as I've been trying to talk about as much as I can. Uh, but I really want to stay connected to you guys and I don't want to lose like my Instagram or example, you know, YouTube, and then I would lose connection with you guys. So you can head to my website, which again is lindsayplatotionart.com. And then on the top bar, it says stay connected. And then you just give your first and last name and email address so I can stay connected to you because I really do value you guys and I'd love to stay connected. And if you can, I would really recommend getting people's phone numbers and addresses of people that you know and trust personally, like people around you uh, in person and really connecting with people locally and banding together that way. Uh, because I, I just think that existing online and trying to get things done um, in a way that gets real stuff done is what has more of an impact if you do it in person with people you actually know. And, you know, the camaraderie and friendship you can gain with people that you know uh, in real life has a much more profound impact on you, at least I've noticed uh, with me personally, like in person. And I think going to church and finding a local church and people that go there and uh, finding friends through there is also not a bad idea at all. Um, you know, I love going to church every week now. It's especially nowadays when the world has gone to absolute crap. And it's every time I every day I wake up, I'm just like, oh, my God, what is going on in the world, man? It's it's, you know. We're, you're not alone in that feeling, obviously, but I love going to church. It just rejuvenates me, really. Anyway, hang in there, guys. Turn to God. He's always there, and um, you can really cast all your doubts and worries and anxieties on him, and he's he's just basically waiting for you, really. Um, it's one of those things that I can preach a million times to you, but it's one of those things that you can only feel for yourself once you start trusting in God and being like, all right, listen, I don't know about you, and I've never talked to you, but show me the way. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. You, there's no right or wrong way to talk to God, really. So um, I just I recommend doing that because it's it's incredible seeing what he can do by simply just praying about certain stuff. Like the other day, I prayed with my husband about going to the DMV because last time I went by myself and it was super stressful and it just it got to me and it shouldn't have. And it was crazy. Like we, my husband got served immediately. Um, I didn't have to wait that long at all. There was like no one there that day. It was the day after Labor Day, which was Tuesday. Um, it was really like an effortless thing. I found it amazing. And I really feel like it was God doing that. So you never know um, until you start asking him to like work through you and help out you and your life. And um, just pray, you know, and thank you to Flying Spaghetti Gender and Nancy Diamond for being my subscribe star rational revolutionaries. And thank you to Colin Turner for donating to my podcast. I greatly appreciate you guys for contributing to my um, endeavors. I really, really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much for supporting my work. Anyway, so um, I guess that's all for now, you guys. Take care. God bless.